Hello there, you terribly fun and good-looking listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We're delighted to present this week's interview with none other than Louis Masai. He's a London-based artist and he uses the power of strong and beautiful imagery to tell important stories and raise awareness of animal-related global issues. Now, this episode is a little longer than usual because we were enjoying ourselves so much and we found so many topics that were fascinating to cover with Louis, including his inspiration, his evolution as an artist, his local and international projects, and the role of his art in communicating important messages. But if you want to jump to a specific topic covered in the interview, have a look at the timestamps in the show notes. Okay, let's jump in, shall we? Here is Louis Masai. Louis, thank you for joining us. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on our show. You're an artist, you're living, working in London. Can we go back to the beginning and can you share a little bit about your background, Louis? I think you grew up in Cornwall. No, I actually lived down in Cornwall for 10 years. Um, I stayed there after I finished studying. Um, But I grew up in Surrey, uh, which is sort of cosmopolitan part or sorry, suburbia part of London, where a lot of people um, commute from London to home and so on. Um, I never really felt like I fitted in too much. So when I moved to Cornwall, I felt like that was more my home. Um, but I grew up in my formative years um, in, in a little village called Ripley, where my parents had a restaurant. Ah, right. From listening to an interview of yours, you used to stay above the restaurant. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a pretty big building as as such, but our actual living area was pretty tiny. It was, we lived there, um, uh, the staff lived there with us as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was in, in some ways, it was a bit like uh, living in a community because there was people from um, all over Europe, really, that used to work for my parents. And so there's a lot of languages and there's a lot of different sort of um, food influences and so on and so forth. So you've got exposure to a range of different people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like um, we had a lot of French, a lot of Madeiran. Uh, my dad is Dutch anyway. So, yeah, there was a lot of different things happening, different accents and languages and so on. But the suburb itself was, you say you didn't really fit into that, but Cornwall was really more your thing. Yeah, because it was, um, I mean, what's cool about Surrey is that it's on the green belt, which means that it's very green and lush. So that part I really did like, and I embraced like going for walks in the woods and so on. Um, but then when I got down to Cornwall, it was, everything was more laid back and um, it's by the coast and I, I, I identify with the, the movements of the sea. Um, and so for me, like I felt grounded there. Um, and I think there's also that kind of natural sort of feeling as a young person that um, born into a place where you don't have a choice to be. And as you get older, you, you have that sort of, uh, you have more of an opportunity to find somewhere that you do want to be. Um, I didn't stay, so it wasn't perfect, but um, nowhere is. But it, it was definitely somewhere that, um, I identified with more, probably also because it was uh, an art university town. So therefore, a lot of people that were in the community in the village were artists or creatives, musicians, DJs, and so on and so forth. So it was a lot more fun to be in and amongst those kind of people than 
Surrey, I don't know if you if you know much about Surrey, but it's definitely very much of a sort of conservative, um, money orientated kind of area, and that just doesn't resonate with me at all. Yeah, sure. You wouldn't get the greatest of inspirations being stuck in an area like that. Yeah. And going back to the beginning, I want to trace your passion in art and painting and and how that came about. When were you first exposed to those mediums? Um. Well, my parents actually, they met um, at art school in Sitting Guilds in the 70s. So there's, and and there's been artists in the sort of, if you go back through our family history, there's been artists since I can, you know, since the people that I know about. Um, and there are continued to be artists in this generation. So I think it's just something that's, I don't want to say it's genetical because I don't know how much I 100% believe with that as an idea, but I think that it's definitely What's good about it is that it's the understanding. And I think that a lot of creative people don't have the understanding from their family and it's kind of shunned. Whereas in my family, it wasn't. It was how can we embrace this and how can we encourage him to do something that he's enjoying, but also good at. And I think that throughout the family, there has been that element. And so inevitably, that's why a lot of us are creatives. So your father and your mother were both creatives uh, specifically in what? I, I, I seem to recall that your dad was a painter. Yeah, my dad still paints as well. Um, I mean, my mom was more into, I guess, illustration in a way and fashion. Um, and now she's she doesn't do so much the art, but well, she knits. She's a fanatic knitter and she makes incredible jumpers, but That's they're awesome. all like <laughs> Very cool. three-dimensional. So it's not just like your average like stitch it's like really complicated mad stuff awesome um take her months to do so you know that's as much of an art as painting a, a painting but i think that in conjunction to uh what's more sort of influential on what i inevitably am doing now is probably more what my dad was doing which is much more of a sort of fine art storytelling kind of uh language that's interesting you say storytelling because I note that one of your taglines in, in your work that you do is tackling species extinction through art and your work focuses on animals and specifically threatened species. I want to understand how you developed an interest and compassion for animals, Louis. I, I, obviously, your art we can trace back, but was it a specific moment or, or was it a gradual change in your attitude or were you always as far as you can remember interested in animals i've always always been interested in animals i mean as a kid i had my bedroom was covered in like photographs of animals and i was collecting uh science animal magazines as a kid um and um yeah i mean my artwork as a young person at school was about animals like i was painting tigers or zebras or so on and so forth, all the family pets and that kind of stuff. And so it's always been there. But I think that the idea of it becoming something that is a message and it's about raising a sort of a voice for someone that can't speak up for themselves, I think any species, but especially endangered, threatened species, I think that that's something that happened very organically. Um, it was just something that I tuned into. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more it influences who I am as a being and the, and then the influences of me as a being influences the art. So it's kind of everything with that I do, it's 
the only way to really describe it is that it's just natural organic process it's one thing influences and inspires the next yeah it sounds inevitable that you would become a specialist in animal art then right i guess so yeah i mean was a period of time for sure when i wasn't painting animals but then that was probably more when i was um um at art school and they push you and challenge you to do new and different things and um i tried out different things and i enjoyed them but i didn't feel like i was achieving quite what i wanted to um and so i went back to something that i knew that i enjoyed um and then it's just like well and ironically through going back to something that i really enjoy i now hear my tutors trying to tell me to do things when I was at art school I didn't understand and I understand them far better now because I'm investing myself into something that I really believe in. In another interview of yours you said that you don't create art to sell you create art because you're addicted to the process and you'd create the material and the works that you want to create. Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your evolution as an artist and how exactly did you start out, Louis, and now to the point at which you, you, you have your own studio in London? Well, like I said, I was living down in Cornwall um, after I finished uni. And um, Cornwall's very, it's, it's one of the poorest parts of the whole of Europe, in actual fact. And so there's really not very many jobs. And there's even less jobs in the arts and even less jobs in the arts if you're not being like a tourist artist or um, a seascape artist, landscape artist. And I never was that, even at art school. So I never I never felt like I could identify and I didn't see any really particular hope of finding myself getting a career in the arts down in Cornwall. So I did what everyone does, which is look for the next best thing, which is working with a good team of people in like a coffee house, restaurant, hotel, whatever. There's many of those in Cornwall. And so I was working in a, a restaurant slash coffee slash bed house. Um, and because of my experience in catering, I was able to be quite flexible where I worked. So when you've got like the change in season, um, because it's a tourist, uh, it's massive tourist industry in Cornwall. It means that in the summer there's too much work and you're never sleeping. And then in, this, in the winter, there isn't any work. So, and then I just got to the point where I was like, I can't do this to myself anymore. I'm being told off for what I consider really pathetic, stupid things. Um, and I'm not fulfilling anything that makes me feel good other than DJing. So I was like, I've got to get out of here. And so I moved to London and um, literally just scraped the barrel every month, being able to pay rent, um, you know, just affording to do anything like not enjoying or embracing London, just literally surviving. Yeah. Uh, and it was more a question of, oh, someone will give me some money to do this, which is vaguely related to art, and therefore I'm less like, at that point I was less sort of like, uh, about saying, no, I'm not doing it if it's not what I want to do. Um, and then as I've like matured as an artist, because you only ever mature as an artist, the more you invest into it. and so in those eight years, like I've, I believe in myself more and more and more. The concepts come through stronger. Um, the the actual standard of work improved, and I was able to reach a place where I could because I wanted to do it. Um, 
through being embraced for that, I'm now being able to make a, you know, like I'm able to survive comfortably now and not have to be petrified about paying rent. Um, kind of still a bit petrified about paying rent because <laughs> we all are. <laughs> you need a bigger studio, which means then you need this and that and everything. Yeah, I mean, like the outgoings now are twice as much as what they were when I started. So. Yeah, it's, I don't know, like, I guess it's the same story for anybody living in the city who is, uh, you know, self-employed. It's you never really know what's going to come next week. Yeah, and London is a tough city, not an easy yeah. place. Um, so you, you've essentially created a brand, Louis. I mean, you've created something that you're super passionate about and people can see that passion shining through. And you've, you've, you've created that personal brand that, that, would, that will sell your work effectively. Yeah. Yeah, I must say being an artist in this day and age, in fact, in any day and age, is a, an incredibly tough road to, to travel on. And um, turning to the type of art that you create, Louis, you use a range of mediums and you paint indoors, outdoors, on reclaimed wood. Can I just ask, what are your favorite mediums and locations and can you explain why? Um, well, you know what, it is interesting because nearly every interview, somebody asks me what my favorite of something is and I will always <laughs> ask the same thing. I don't believe in favorites. Oh, really? Um, because if, there's, if there's a favorite, then it means there's something that you didn't like and I try not to do anything I don't like doing. Um, and everything is, is got a different, everything that you, I do creatively or anything periodically, um, it, it, bring something new to the table and there's always going to have high moments and low moments. So when I'm painting on woods, like it's a completely different experience than making a 3d sculpture and making one of my paintings look like a sculpture. Um, and then within the, the constraints of the sculpture, then you can suddenly start make, it doesn't have to be static. It can move. Um, and then it's, you can put like a, uh, then you can put that painting, uh, that sculpture into more of like an installation. And then the installation creates an emotion and the, emo the emotion is attached with more of um, a sort of end result. Whereas a painting, it still kind of retains it. It's like, this is a painting. It's going to go on your wall and it's going to make the space look pretty. A mural kind of does a little bit of both. But because it's static and it's still insular within being on a wall, it means that it is still nicing up a space. But if you pass on some kind of like information to educate the community that go past it, then if they read the information, then the, the, the mural goes a step further than just being a, a pretty picture. Whereas, so it's, I don't really know if I'm even answering the question properly, but it's, Every, I'm not because you wanted a favorite and I don't have a favorite. So. <laughs> we'll scrap the rest of the questions that ask about favorites. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> and I, I, when you're talking about communicating a message and, and having a, not just putting it up a wall as you put it, from listening to an interview with Charlotte Webster, it seems that there's a lot of artists, community of artists in and around London who, who use their art as a means to convey environmental and social issues and raise awareness. And it seems like a really supportive and, and motivating group. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Louis? What is that community like in London? That's a good question. I can tell you how it is from my perspective, and I can tell you how it is from working within uh, the collective human nature. But it would be difficult for me to answer that as like a definitive, this is the answer. 
the main reason why it's hard for me to answer is because I'll be honest, I don't socialize much because I'm in the studio all the time or I'm on a project somewhere else around the world. So sure. how much interaction do I get with artists in the UK and London? It's very limited. Um, so for me, like as an artist, um, I wouldn't say that there's that many UK slash London artists that are dealing with environmentally impacting issues with their work. I think that on like a world scale, it's very limited as to the amount of us that are using our way, our work as a way in which to voice. Say it's even less of, of a group of artists that are committed solely to that. Um, I think you'll see artists that will dip into it just in the same way as they'll dip into mental health or something like that. But they, there's not many that solely dedicate their whole practice to that work ethos um but there i mean atm for instance is an example of an artist that does and he's based in london and he's on the human nature uh, collective human nature as like as a collective like i guess we like have the opportunity to interact with each other when we are working on a project together whether it be an exhibition or um a curated mural project but i wouldn't necessarily say that any of us have the opportunity to actually just go and chill with each other or like really socially interact with each other. I think, especially from my perspective, I tend to spend time with people who I'm working on projects with or people who are in very close vicinity to where my house is. And, and, and that's because of how difficult it is to get from one part of London to the next. And then depending on where you are living in London, it's even harder. So I yeah. live in the South of London and it's forever to get to anywhere. It's not like it's not connected. It's just that everybody else is on the outskirts because we can't exist uh, economically on the insides of London. So we all live on the outskirts of London and therefore to get from one part to the next takes a long time. Yeah, everywhere in London takes forever. Yeah. Really does, uh, Louis. So, for the for the benefit of the listeners, Human Nature is a collective of artists coming together to work on projects together, or is it more of a? How does it actually work? So, I mean, Charlotte hasn't done anything for a while with Human Nature. I think that they've been going through a bit of like a change of um, project thesis, but that's down to the fact that um, it's hard to financially run projects like that, um, and make money from them yeah you can you can get the finances to make the project happen but to be able to continuously make it happen and pay yourself for the management and the production is um it's very hard so and because of the constraints of the the the, the structure of it being that it's environmental it means that the companies that do invest in it have to be ethically minded and mm -hmm. it's very easy to find an unethical company who wants to promote something because it makes them look good but within the constraints of their um, their manifesto they've got to stay true to that and so therefore they have to turn back many more than they take on with regards like um, funding options so um, but as a collective um, it works by I guess like I mean, the, the the platform is the website, um, and it's nomadic, so it can go anywhere at once. Um, and the I guess the last project that that um, that they did were 
like from a, well, I guess the last two projects they've done from a production point of view have both been things that I have spearheaded. So it's almost like as an artist from within the collective, I've seen the fact that they are on the same uh, mindset as I am. And I've gone to them and said, look, guys, do you want to help me project manage this, this idea I have? And they said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So it's, um, I guess it's a question of who the next artist is that will approach them to say, let's do something. And everyone's got the time to do it. I think they're working on a project with ATM at the moment um, to do something similar to what I did in the States, but I don't know how far they've got with that. Okay, cool. We want to definitely talk about the art of being um, in quite a lot of detail, but before we do that, was Endangered 13, that was a human nature project as well, right? Yeah, we did it together. Yeah. And what was what was that about? What was the um, what was the project essentially? I think um, when I looked it up, I just thought that our London listeners might want to go check it out because it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So basically, I I get like a good number of emails from people saying, "Oh, I've got this uh, space. Would you like to come and paint it? I want it to be um, related with animals and so on." Which is why they sent me the email in the first place. Um, and so. On this particular occasion, it uh, came through from these guys that run the the Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park, and they've got a plot of land which is owned by them, but it is shared. Like the 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 arches that we painted on is owned by um, the the London train line, so uh, Network Rail. So they applied for permission to be allowed to paint the arches to make this space better and then they were keeping it wild they wanted it to be able to because in the actual cemetery they've got one of the largest population or very variant populations of butterflies in the whole of the uk oh my god wow that's so cool and they've got species that are nowhere else in london and they think it might be because they've they've come down the train line from the country uh countryside because they can tell that the right plants are in the cemetery. So they want to continue planting more of those kinds of plants to keep those sorts of species having a home. And so when I found out about what they were doing, I was like, oh, you guys are wicked. I really want to do something with you. But it seems ridiculous to paint one mural on one arch when you've got 20 something arches. So (laughs) I can't do that many arches. A, I don't have time and, and B, it's going to cost a lot. So why don't we, raise some funds and get a group of artists down and then give the artists um, some curating and like a brief and set them at a species and make it as like a place of here's a bunch of animals that are threatened um, and just taking it a step further than it being one artist doing and have 13 artists painting over a course of a weekend and to have like the media involved and um, to advertise the fact that it's not just one artist who's interested in this. It's a whole group of artists and you can also get involved just because um, you're not doing it today. doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it tomorrow. Just visualizing that a cemetery filled with butterflies and plants and murals of incredible creatures just feels very surreal to me and very cool. I wish that we'd checked it out when we were in London. Yeah, it was really cool. And so can, can anyone just go and, and have a look? Yeah, it's actually the the part where it is. It's not quite in the cemetery. You walk kind. Of, you can either walk through the cemetery or on the side of it. But it's it's they they own the land. Um, the Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park owns the land. So yeah, anyone can go. 
Very cool idea. Um, and the art of being, that's, that's my favorite, but maybe it's just because you have the most pictures on your website about the art of being. I really like this project. It's super cool. And it's what, what sort of um, drew me to you as an artist. And we also went yesterday and saw your coho salmon mural in Sacramento and took a video of it and it was really exciting. Can you tell us a bit more about this project and for the benefit of the listeners, um, what you actually did and where you went and how it came to be? Uh, yeah, that one's actually, it's kind of an interesting one uh, with, the, with the Sacramento because it wasn't somewhere we were going to go to start with. Um, when I say we, I, I went with my two friends, T and Emil, who made films, and there's five films that they made uh, throughout the project. Um, and it's not, they're not films necessarily about me and about me painting. They're about the context of what's going on in the environment, talking to the general public, talking to scientists, talking to um, all kinds of different people about issues and then looking for threads because there wasn't really a plan with the, with the context. It was um, very much like on the cuff, like let's see what we can find and make a narrative within each finding. And so, um, so yeah, those guys came with me. I've uh, detracted from the question, but the, <laughs> essentially the, the idea behind the project was I wanted to, I, I wanted to be able to attire um, um, the, the the context of what the animal is as a species with where it is from, and I wanted to do it consecutively. Um, but if I was to do that in the UK, after a while, it becomes very same same. Mm. Um, and then I was like, well, why don't we go to the states? Because a, it's vast. The, the landscape changes from one state to the next incredibly. Um, there's so many species out there. We've got perspectively uh, a psychopath about to take over the country at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it will be really interesting to find out the difference in the way in which the general public view the importance of the environment. Um, so that was the reason for wanting to go to the States. The reason why I ended up in Sacramento was because we were traveling from Detroit to um, an environmental conference outside San Francisco. And I reached out to, well, I started a Kickstarter um, to be able to raise some extra funds because we didn't have enough. Um, and then uh, one of um, a, a guy who had uh, bought one of my paintings off me um, became particularly interested in the, the the tour and said, "Oh, will you stop through Sacramento?" And I said, "Yeah, I will, but you need to sponsor the wall." So what I was doing was finding people to sponsor walls, and then that in turn helped fund the the whole project as a context, like. The yeah, the, I mean the whole thing. We were there for nine weeks, three of us, so it, it wasn't cheap. Um, so the the project was funding itself. Uh, we did have a couple of um, sponsorships as well. Like we had uh, a Spanish clothing company called EcoAlf. Shout outs to EcoAlf, um, who uh, those guys. They basically gave us uh, loads of clothes, um, and then they also gave us. Um, check which was able to um, keep funding the whole sort of like momentum of the project and keep it going because 
whenever you do a big project like that, you have to have your initial startup. Otherwise, you can't get anything else, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like um, imperative to that sort of first step. And uh, yeah, wicked company as well, because all their clothes are made out, made out of um, plastics that come out of the ocean or recycled wool, recycled plastic. And so they're very... I mean, the name's Eco Alf. The Alf is the name of the um, the founder's son. So Eco is like it, um, but it's an environmental thinking company. So they're they're super cool. Wow, brilliant! Really cool. And so obviously, you didn't just go to Sacramento. You went all around the whole country. You did twenty murals in twelve cities in just two months. Is that right? Something like that. Um, I know. Yeah. I mean, I think that what you're reading off is um, what our sort of mission statement was. I don't remember exactly how many we put in the end. And I did actually paint more than I put up, but I didn't uh, put up all of the photographs of like just a bee because um, I'd already done it. So the whole point was to be able to use the website as a platform to uh, have for the audience and the general public to come back to, to then get some information about species or the species and why it was affected, what they can do about it. So it was kind of like um, call to action. Right. And um, the murals themselves are of toy patchwork animals. What was the inspiration for that imagery? Uh, I mean, I'm going to use the same word I've used already. Everything's very organic with me. So um, when I was painting animals, I was, um, I felt like there was some, I mean, animals are not, particularly colorful uh they are but it's not as bright and vibrant as the fabrics that we make to adorn ourselves with um and i wanted to look for a way in which to brighten up the paintings so i started to uh underlay patchwork uh well not even patchwork at that point it was just like fabric patterns from say if i was doing species that was from a part of Africa, um, I would use um, an African cloth um, in the ears or in the underbelly of, of the animal. And it would just be like a sort of hint of that. Um, and then the fur or whatever the animal had would go over the top and so on. And then I did um, a series of work, which was about, um, it was all sort of centered around this idea that if an animal's deceased, then and extinct then it means that all that's left is a souvenir or a toy mm. and so um i did this whole series of interrelation of uh, a realistic painted animal and a toy animal and i just really liked the patchwork toys uh and i liked where i could go with it and so that it kind of just snowballed and i kept on doing them and that's what i've continued to do that's epic um, I watched your, your video about the manatees in Florida and was, was quite curious because you mentioned that you, um, that you met a manatee before you went and did the, the mural of the manatee and that fed your creativity when it came to painting the manatee mural. Now, Lyle and I both come from a corporate background and while we have sort of dabbled in creative projects here and there, we're not inherently creative people. So it's a little bit of a foreign idea for us. Can you can you share a little bit more about how the connection with your subject works to make you a better artist? I don't know if it makes me a better artist. For me, what it was is it was like more of a reality check. That's what I was meaning in the, in the, in the film. It was... Um, if I paint a rhino 
the likelihood of me ever seeing a rhino and being up and personal with a wild rhino is very slim. I have met wild rhinos in South Africa, but up until that point, I had never seen them in the wild. Um, because I, I mean, in the last like year, I've been really lucky because I've actually met a lot of wild animals because of the projects I've been working on. But prior to that, and at the point of the manatee, I'd never really been up and close and personal with a species that I was painting. Being on that interaction with it in its natural environment and then inside captivity, but it's a research place, so it's not like they're prisoners, they were rescued and they're being looked after and some of them are too old or too injured to go back in the wild. So the conservation uh, space, it, it, the place that I saw, you saw me with the manatees in the video, but um, I guess the point I'm making is that it's more of a reality check if you can actually experience seeing that animal or even not seeing it and being with people that can tell you direct stories about the animal. Because mm. it makes it just seem less of something that you've read on uh, an essay or a document or um, seen in a documentary or uh, seen as a list in the ICN or on a blog or whatever it is. It's the the reality of it is far greater because you've either experienced the essence of the species or you've experienced the story from someone that lives with that species and is telling you that it's no longer there. Yeah, I can definitely relate to feeling that connection with an animal and feeling that something like there's something so much more there and so much more powerful and important than than us as a human race. Um, so I, I can see how that could work in in a creative sense as well. Um, now I know you don't want to talk about favorites, but I'd love to know if there is any on that experience of that that art of being trip whether you had any mural cities, people or animals that stood out as most memorable for you? The whole thing is just, it's, it's every single place I went, there's something else that would be strong to answer that question. So there isn't any one thing. It's just there is, the whole experience of the whole thing was, was amazing. It was hard. Like it's possibly the hardest nine weeks of my life. Like it was exhausting. I, I, yeah, I can't, I mean, Detroit was really, really cool. Um, because it's a really sort of DIY attitude to the community. Um, everyone's very proactive. Everyone is very politically minded. Um, there's a lot of spoken word there. There's a lot of activism. There's a lot of environmental awareness. There's a lot of, um, backyard gardening there's a lot of artists musicians and so on so I felt really inspired by them as people but then the, the person that hosted me there Breeze word up Breeze um, he literally he he was such a humble being and he like shared incredible stories with us about his indigenous cultures and explained to us about the damming and but then we were in Miami, in Florida even, not Miami. Um, where were we in Florida? I've forgotten now. Um, it was a bit out of Miami. It's, it's kind of near Miami. But we were, where we saw the wild manatee, we were having an interview with a lady called Elizabeth, 
shout out to Elizabeth, who's amazing, the things that she's doing with um, the manatees. And she was amazing to talk with because she was sharing information with us that we wouldn't have obtained by not having been introduced to an expert in manatees and the way they live in the world. So the whole experience just was like a snowball of one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And there wasn't any moment that was dull. There was just moments where it's like, oh my God, I've got to get out of bed. I'm exhausted. Yeah. It sounds like the public reception for the artwork was really appreciative, Louis, and they could they responded to, to what you were doing. Is that the sense you got? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was definitely, there was one moment um, in New York in Bushwick where a guy came out of his um, his warehouse and started like screaming and shouting at me saying, uh, he basically was angry because the space was being gentrified. And yeah. artists, we get this a lot, like where people blame us for the gentrification of a space. And you could argue the the, the either side of that argument. Um, but then after a while, but I mean, he made like, um, he made assumptions of who and what we were. And so after like me stepping him aside and talking with him, he, he simmered down and then we were able to talk on like a human level again and it was fine. He came back out later and offered to buy me a cup of coffee. So (laughs) I mean, like, I, I, I always believe in talking through with someone what's going on and trying to break down this barrier of hate is really important. And it's very easy to dismiss someone who's doing something because they genuinely feel like they want to do something good and um, presume that everyone does something for the sake of making money or they're doing it because they're loaded with money. And it's not the case. I'm not saying that it's not the case at times, but I'm saying that it's not always the case. And therefore, if you can allow yourself the composure to talk with that person, talk them through why it is that you are outside their home doing this in that space, and then it, you know apologize and accept the fact that that area is being gentrified because of what we're contributing, and it probably isn't going to do any doing anyone any good and accept it but then at the same time say actually I don't accept this and I will at some point want to work on a level where this doesn't exclude people because gentrification is evil and there's like there isn't a place I haven't painted all around the world that isn't being gentrified and the I don't know what the answer to it is um, I don't know if as artists it's our responsibility to find the answer or not, um, but I know that we do need to find an answer to it because I do believe that the art in these communities is beneficial, but I think that we need to stand up and fight with the people who are being booted out of those places to be allowed to stay in those places and have their businesses in those places. I don't think that necessarily because gentrification is happening in your area that you have to get really angry about it and fight and and then leave. I think that you've got to learn to work how to work with it and retain something of its history. Otherwise, the gentrification just destroyed anything that that space was in the first place. So I don't know if I'm like totally going off track. No, that's no, not at all. That's yeah, very interesting. But I mean, I, I do definitely like one of the, I do leave spaces at times and think, shit, 
I've just contributed to gentrification and it pisses me off. And right now, like my mind is so heavily invested into trying to find avenues and ways to protect species that perhaps I am falling foul of not thinking about the ideas of the impacts of what my painting does on the gentrification ladder. But because I recognised it and I don't agree with it, it means that at some point I will find a way in which to challenge that as well. But I just haven't worked it out yet. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's really tricky for, for anybody who's trying to live more consciously and contribute and have impact in a really meaningful way to cover all bases and make sure that they're doing the right thing by everybody. I mean, so many times I've looked at trying to do the right thing and ended up doing the wrong thing. I think it's it's really tricky, but I think as long as we keep having open communication about it, to your point of just having conversations and trying to figure out solutions together that hopefully I mean that's the best we can do right yeah and I think that you touched on something very important there because um, whenever you think you're doing the right thing just make sure that you check in with what the origin of the the thing that you think you're doing is in the first place what I mean by that is a classic example of it is um, where uh, lions were being hunted uh, for trophy hunting and then it became outlawed and in the outlawing of it um, and the protection of the lions other ways of um, killing the animal was increased and therefore more problems were caused by uh, by having it criminalized and than it was when it was legal so I'm not saying that I'm supporting poaching, not in the slightest, but what I'm saying is that if you're going to tackle the issue of poaching, then you need to tackle it from the perspective of the people that understand. Um, and, and that comes from dealing with the indigenous and dealing with the locals and dealing with the elders and the people who understand the space. So if you take that concept and you take it back to the idea of gentrification, there's no point in talking to me about it. You've got to go and talk to the people that are living in the in the in the homes in that space for the last sixty years. So you've got to go and talk to the elders. You've got to go and talk to the people who've had businesses for the last fifteen years. You've got to talk to the people who have bought the properties that were there when they were deemed wasteland and now are deemed like you know half a million pounds on the property ladder. Those are the people you've got to talk to. And then once you ha understand their stories and you understand what it is that they think about the situation, then you can make your decisions about is this a good or a bad thing. Um, and as an artist, being in a space for a very short period of time, it's very difficult to do that. There's also the ego that comes in. Like anybody who's um, creative has an ego because you invest all of your time and energy into the construction of the art, the music, the acting, uh, whatever it is. And therefore, you're, you, you have a natural gratification, which is essentially your ego. So sometimes that can take over. And it's not until you've done it that you step back and go, oh, hang on, wait a second. Was that, was that the right thing to do? And then you can learn from it and you can make the decision of whether you let your ego win again or if you learn from it and go, why is that being done and who is it being done for? It sounds, I mean, it, the, the responsibility of being an artist producing whatever work it is, whether as you, as you alluded to, 
painting, acting, singing, and using that for a greater purpose and, and walking that, that line is, is a very tricky, it's a tricky thing to balance, isn't it? Yeah. But I think that whenever you put something in the public, it's difficult because especially in this day and age where people are calling each other out all the time, it's you, you your senses become heightened and um, you have to be adaptable and you've got to work out where you sit in, in, in and amongst other people's opinions. And you've got to sort of, yeah, just work out how you feel about it. That's so true. That's definitely something that we found going on this little endeavor of ours is, is you need to have an opinion on things even if it's and, and be comfortable that it might not be entirely correct or that your knowledge is not entirely fully developed yet um but it, i was really interested in your point about you know involving the local communities I, I think that modern conservation programs are starting to realize that this is critical that you can't save the rhino for example without involving the local communities and um, helping them develop alternatives to poaching because for them you know the the poaching industry is run by organized crime at the end of the day those are the guys that are winning from this the local the local communities who are going out and doing the actual act of killing the rhino and taking the horn are the the poorest of the poor and are desperate people you know you need to be able to provide them with alternative means to feed their family and to help them and help educate them and help them you know understand how important it is to conserve these species for greater good um you, you can't just go in there and take it away yeah, totally. I mean, the, the guys that are killing the, the rhinos are not the villains. Like, they're actually risking their lives by going out there and killing those rhinos, not from just being potentially attacked by a lion or something out there, but because they have to do it under the cover of dark. They're actually risking their lives of getting shot by the gamekeepers who are protecting the animals. And they're doing it to earn a very small amount of money to then yeah. sell it on the market, who then sell it for millions. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. such an injustice to local African yeah. communities, for sure, oh, and Asian communities. Speaking of South Africa, you did a couple of murals there, a beautiful gorilla and a vulture, is that right? Oh, I did more than that. I did oh, about did more? 10 people. Yeah, um, I did a couple of vultures. Um, I did uh, the crane the blue crane, I did gorilla, I did rhino skull, uh, I did giraffe, what else? Yeah, yeah, I did a whole heap of stuff. So we, um, can you tell us a bit more about your trip to South Africa and, and how you sort of, the animals that you picked? Yeah, I basically, I I, I, um, I wanted to do, I think that this was the, the, the tipping point for me, like when I switched uh, from just painting an animal to painting about species in decline because um, I'd always wanted to go out to South Africa, but I didn't. I didn't want to go there and just paint an animal. I wanted to go there and paint animals that were endangered in South Africa. And so um, I constructed a list and picked out. I took like a, a print printouts of all of these different species, and then just woke up in the morning after having found a wall and decided that I would paint that animal in that place. Um, and then I collaborated with a few local artists, um, shout outs to Breeze, different Breeze to the one in Arizona. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, what was really important for me about that trip to South Africa was the fact that I witnessed people caring about the fact that their animals were dying. And I didn't see that coming from the people in the UK, in London at all. Mm. Uh, and so that I found really interesting because 
I guess it's because like they are directly affected because there is this heavy poaching that goes on. Um, and whereas in the UK, like in the first place, there isn't the species that are suffering here are more like birds and insects and plants, um, as opposed to mammals and so on. So, and we don't have that many big top game mammals anyway. So therefore people are not really associated with this idea of a depleting species other than stuff that's happened around the world. And that's been happening since the sixties, if not before. I know that from the age of like a very small kid in the eighties, like I remember hearing about all of the campaigns to save tigers and rhinos and elephants and, we're still fighting for their survivals now. In fact, beginning of this week, like the last male white northern rhino died. And that's the end of the species if they can't get the, the last two females pregnant with IVF. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like South Africa, like it was a heartbeat and people were out campaigning for the rhinos and they were like, uh, uh, project maybe it was just the time I was there they were doing like a lot of campaigning I don't know but there was like the rhino was projected onto so they were projecting rhinos onto there every night and yeah it was just like I was like holy shit why doesn't anyone talk about this in our tabloids why is it we're talking about celebrities dying and like who's in the big brother household why aren't we talking about species in decline so when I got back to the UK I was like right that's it I'm only painting endangered species anymore. So yeah. South Africa for me was like very, it was very poignant, like time for me. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, we could share a little bit, like we, we both grew up in South Africa and, you know, as a child, you get exposed to these animals quite, you know, reasonably often, obviously more often than people in other countries. And I mean, in my experience, and I, I re recognize that I'm totally lucky on the lucky side, we got to go out to Kruger Park and see these animals on a regular basis. So for us, I, and I think for many South Africans, there's that passion there because you've seen it in action and you've you've watched the decline right in front of your eyes. And I think that's probably where that passion and energy comes from that you're referring to, that heartbeat. Um, Louis, we're going to hit you up for your list of murals in South Africa and we're going to go try find them. If yeah, sure. I mean, they're all in um, Woodstock pretty oh, cool. much. Awesome. They're, they're around. I don't that they've been weathered pretty badly um, and they're in pretty bad shape, but they are there. They're all in Woodstock. Louis, we want to chat about your, your podcast because that's a re reasonably recent thing, right? Yeah. So that it's called the, um, the All Fruits Ripe and yeah. your podcast manifesto says that via open discussions and exploration into the environmental issues with experts in their given field, we aim to unearth the ways that many inspiring individuals are picking their own ripened fruits. So I listened to the episode with Charlotte Webster yesterday and was super impressed. You've given the podcast a really unique feel and you, you include some like beautiful music tracks. I think there's four tracks per episode and they seem to have an environmental connection. And then you also have insanely cool interviewees from the art scene or, or, and from other different disciplines. Can you share a little bit about the, the inspiration for the podcast and the flow of a typical interview? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, my friend that I do the podcast with, Adam, um, his artist name's Hailey, shout outs to Adam, doing all these shout outs. <laughs> uh, he's, um, he's been a friend of mine for like the last eight years since I've lived in London. And he's always been in South London and I've sort of been all over the place. Um, and it's only in the last three years I've been in South London and we've 
had more opportunity to have time to, to hang out. And so we were having conversations about, you know, our, our both of us are vegan. And so we were talking about food and we're talking about uh, superfoods and like health and just different things that we found interesting. And I was listening to podcasts and it's that, you know, that it's a big thing now. Everyone's got a podcast. So, I mean, I was like, well, these are cool, but it makes me want to do one. <laughs> so to Adam, I was like, dude, we need to do something and you know, to um, discuss the things that we are discussing and, but invite a guest and he's a, he's a music producer, sound engineer. So we wanted to maintain the music element and I used to DJ a lot and I've got a huge vinyl collection and I've got a massive respect for vinyl. And so in fact, when I first was, out of uni, I was adamant I was going to design album covers for reggae artists. But, <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> That's great. So, I mean, for me, like, vinyl's really super important. So the idea was to sort of fuse together those two elements. Um, I guess essentially it's the two worlds that both of us have and mush them together in an hour talking to people that I think the audience may or may not want to listen to, but I'm hoping that they do. But um, And to try and mix it up as well. So that, it's not just about artists or it's not just about scientists or whatever. It's, it's like across the board. And you do the actual interviews in a room with a giant sound system. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I was reading, it's, it's, excuse my ignorance, I know nothing about this, these sound systems, but it's made out of wood. Is that something that, that sounds pretty unique? Uh, all sound systems are made out of wood. Um, okay, so yeah, maybe that's not. Yeah, built. But I think... What we were talking about, I mean, it's a few months since I listened to that podcast, but I think that what we touched on there was that Adam wanted to build uh, or is in the process of building um, nomadic sound system. So uh, cool. Yeah. So like he can and it works on like pedal power. So I, the idea is for it's like the listener cycles and that powers the sound system to play the music and so on. And so it, it sort of takes on like that more sort of because a lot of power is used to make a, a sound system run. And so being that he's environmentally thinking, he's like, well, what can we do to like challenge this as an idea and it'd be fun and then take it into different places where sound system is not. I mean, essentially what drives Adam is sound system culture. If you go to somewhere like Jamaica, like sound systems are playing everywhere. But then when you walk around London, the, the, the most you get is like someone's sound system on their car blaring. Yeah. So myself and Adam, that feels quite alien and it doesn't feel quite right. Like, so I think that his idea is to use it in a way in which to have little sound systems like appear in, in random places. That's really cool. How have you found the, the process of running a podcast so far? Yeah, it's been cool. I mean, we did a lot of our recordings all at one time in last summer because both of us are so busy. And then Adam's been editing them to release them each month. And so we share like the responsibilities of promoting it. And yeah, I mean, it's a growing thing. Like you've got to appreciate that the first, I guess, 10 podcasts or whatever are not going to be listened to that widely. But um, once you've got a certain amount, then people have got um, a back catalogue that they can tune into and I guess that the old ones get picked up later on. Yeah, yeah, we're finding the same thing. Uh, Louis, I'll just, I just want to jump back um, to 
the discussion we were having around uh, art and the responsibility of art in, in communicating the challenges that we face. Now, you've seen a lot of the world. You've traveled all over. Uh, from your perspective, what concerns you most about what's going on in this day and age? Well, the natural environment is the number one um, because if you don't recognize this idea of biodiversity, then you don't respect the fact that anything that happens to any other species, whatever it is, is going to affect you and your family and friends at some point. And I don't think that people will appreciate that enough. I just don't think that they get it. I think that people understand it for a minute, for a minute, but they don't understand the full impact of it. And I mean, the ocean is the thing that really concerns me because if you look at like the molecular structure of the planet, it's the, the majority of its water. I can't remember the percentage, but the, and then the majority of our body is water. So water is very prevalent in like the existence of man, and just, we are destroying everything that's water-based. Um, so we haven't recognized that at a point when it should have been recognized and it's taken a documentary done by David Attenborough for people to even start thinking about plastic in the ocean, which to me is ridiculous because people have been talking about it. Al Gore was talking about it 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Why is it that it has to be of celebrity culture to make people think? And so, I mean, not to knock what David's done because he's an incredible person and I got so much regard for him. He's like a hero for me. But I also think that it's like, why did it take a BBC documentary for you to suddenly realize that the plastic that you're throwing in the bin is probably going in the ocean? And that means that dolphins are probably eating it because they're eating fish that are definitely eating it. And then it means that the pups that are dying randomly after two years is probably because of plastic poisoning from the milk of the mother. Well, my brain immediately thinks, well, if that's happening within the dolphin, why is that not happening? And what is it that makes people think that isn't happening in humans? Exactly. Because it works. 100%. It, it just, it does, it does worry me immensely. Like, I mean, you're going to see, you, the, the more you're traveling, the more you will see how different people interact with the environment. But I mean, we, I was in Bali for the only holiday in forever with my girlfriend at the beginning of the year. And, um, we were sat on the beach and I, after about 10 minutes, I was like close to tears because like the tide was going out, but with every push of the tide going out, it was leaving a trail of plastic shit on the beach. Oh my. And I was like, right, I'm going for a walk. I'm going to go pick up some plastic. And everybody just watched me. Nobody gave a shit. Wow. That's incredible. That's, um, that's so scary. And uh, just going back to that uh, interview with Charlotte Webster, and her mentioning that, you know, scientists and people in general or people that care that are trying to convey this this message that um, we are in a race against time, they need help. And in other words, we, you know, we can throw all the facts and percentages and terrifying statistics at people, but to actually have an impact and to move the needle and to change behavior is is a huge task. So I, I want to ask you what are what are your thoughts on the role of art to communicate this urgent message to humanity? How much of a responsibility do you think artists have to to take this to the masses, Louis? 
I don't think it's a sole responsibility of anybody. I think it's the responsibility of everybody. But, however, artists have got a way of making something more either palatable or unpalatable. And both medium is provocative and powerful. So I don't really know what the answer to the question is in the sense, it, is it our responsibility or how how is it our responsibility? I think that it's a question of acknowledging the fact that you are that you have dedicated your life to something that humanity enjoys and embraces. And it's a question of what can you do that is one step further than just going, I'm doing this purely for the sake of it sounds good or it looks good or it feels good. Um, what is it like? The, it, it's kind of like it's not, I've been having this massive conversation with my girlfriend the last couple of days and like it's a question of it's not it's not good enough now just to be a good person. You've got to be more than a good person. So it's not good enough just to be a good artist anymore. You've got to be a good artist that's saying something Other, because there's so many artists now and because of the way in which we're able to communicate with artists from all around the world it means that we now know that we're not this small community we're a humongous community and because um art is now affordable it means that artists can survive um so therefore as a as a community we're going to have more chance of um having some kind of social change whatever the, the subject matter is by utilizing our creative gifts as the catalyst to get that point across because people are less likely to listen to a lecture or less likely to read a book or less likely to take note from a nerdy envir environmentalist or scientist or I mean nerdy in a good way like I don't <laughs> <want> to <laughs> yeah to me to me it's like it's less of a response I think responsibility is the wrong word for me it's like a it's like a magic power and you're like a superhero and you can use it in for good or for bad and using art to communicate things is like to communicate really important messages like this is is using your powers for good yeah I I think it's very interesting to note that when people are faced with the facts and as, I, as I've just said, statistics, that doesn't necessarily make change, but to show them a beautiful documentary or a, or a beautiful mural on the wall that makes them question or, or ask what is the meaning behind this has a greater impact. So in a sense, artists like yourself, Louis, who have dedicated your work that you create to a greater meaning and, and in a way future-proofing our planet has a massive impact and the contribution is huge so also i see that you've been thought of as a as an activist artist i was just you know wondering what your opinion was on being termed a, as an activist artist if that's something that you can identify with with the works that you're creating it's all very topical at the moment um for me like i find that certain words are they're not empowering enough or they are, they've got too much negative association with it. We're currently, as, as, as a race, we are literally picking through the human language and we are deciding that certain things are inappropriate. And I think that's a good thing. 
I wonder whether certain words that are used, like, for instance, activist, it's not that it's inappropriate. I just, is it, how real is it anymore? And if you're, if, if you're deeming yourself as an activist or part of an activist group, who are you acting out for? Are you acting out for your peers? And are you acting out for the people who are essentially already preached to and are on board or are you acting out to people who've got no idea what you're talking about and are actually probably hugely responsible without even realizing for the cause and effects so for me if you if you're calling me an activist i instinctively think to myself of negative connotations and i'm a positive person so if I then talk about activism with somebody who's less interested in environmental issues or the things activists are talking about, I can't begin for a second to believe that they're switched on. So therefore, for me to be called an activist means that you've just successfully cut out a huge proportion of the people that I want to have that discussion with. Yeah, that makes so much sense. You, you could argue that by... It, associating the word artist to it I've cut out a group of people as well mm. and I have which is why I mean I hate the word street art as well but if you if you use the word public art or community art people come towards you more because it means that it's allowed for them or they're allowed to be a part of it and so that's why I think art is is good in used in an active manner because it gives the opportunity to have open discussion with people who may previously have just walked away and been bored by the conversation. Yeah, I think yeah. that's that's so right. You don't want to be alienating. You want to be inclusive. You want people to feel like they, irrespective of their political views or their environmental views or any of their views, they should be allowed to enjoy your art. And if you use words like active activist, potentially they would feel like they're excluded from enjoying your art. Right. But ironically also, like I've reached a point now where I kind of have to accept the fact that people are going to call me an activist. And maybe now it's time that I've got so much, like so much more involved in this whole thing that I have to switch up my game and that it can't be, just about painting anymore because the subject matter is so strong with the art that it's political so therefore that means my political game needs to change and then that means that how I deal with the way in which I communicate with the audience needs to reflect that and so it's going to make me look more like an activist but I kind of feel like it's reaching a point where it's not a question of justifying what I'm doing it's a question of um, making sure that it's been fully understood because otherwise people are going to get confused by what it is and they're going to go, okay, so you're just trying to make money out of this. Well, no, I'm not trying to make money out of it. It's wicked that it is making money because it means that I can pay my rent, which is what makes most of the money out of my sales of art. And then it means that I can eat and it means that I can continue painting. And then it means that when there is the opportunity, I can then also direct money towards charities like I did with my last print release. It's a question of like 
like I said, it's always organic and it's like each day brings a new part of the jigsaw puzzle. You know what a term I like is mission driven. So that's something that we're using for our little endeavor. You're like a mission driven artist. You have a real sense of purpose in what you're doing. You're not, it's not just art for art's sake. It's beautiful art that has a, has a purpose and has a mission behind it. So maybe that's one idea. Yeah, I mean, I like conscious because I think that conscious reflects like, especially for myself, it reflects everything about me. It's not a question of what the impact of the painting is or so on and so forth. It also, it's about who I am as a person and what my views and thoughts are about life and how to treat people. I really like that. Yeah, I like that too. More broadly, Louis, any other artists around you? I know that you said that the scene in London and artists that are dedicated to a cause such as yourself is quite small, but are there any others who have inspired you, whether it be in the type of art that you create or the underlying messages that you try to convey? Yeah, um, Josh Keyes, he's amazing. Uh, he's uh, an American artist. He... Um, he, his work's about animals, but it's um, he he isolates them in like in the paintings into spaces where it's like, yep, this is what you guys did, uh, and the animals having to exist inside that chaos of what's happened, whether it's like climate change or whatever it is. But he deals with like issues of how nature survives humans basically uh and i find that really inspiring um i also got massive respects for never crew who are from switzerland i believe um they paint um a lot of mural work as well as studio-based work but um they paint like big polar bears that are like dripping oil from their pores and or they will paint um, rocks that are like mineral rocks that have been taken from the land and so on. They, their mission statement is similar in respects to mine. Like they, they're actively looking for ways to highlight climate change. Um, so I mean, yeah, there are. Oh, um, oh shit, names just gone from my head. Um, I remember it in a minute, but. Um, I like it like uh, when an artist deals with issues like Ron English does as well because he's he's very much more about who is this maniac running our country we need to talk about this let's use art as a way to discuss it uh, or he will um, discuss like the obscenity of McDonald's or like Disney or whatever it is and like really go in on it and he's such a good painter. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And one love, your sign off. We saw next to co-host Salmon here in Sacramento. Joy and I are just super curious what exactly that means to you. One love is just like the humanity of of people and or the warmth of people and our existence inside um, the ever turning planet, and that it is one. Like we can't. And and um, we we can't be one race, we can't be one species, but we can be one love. Um, and I think that it's important to remember that, like you are beautiful and divine because of 
who you are as an individual, but we are beautiful and divine because of a one unity and that is love. And I think that the more you embrace love, the stronger we can be as a planet and as an environment and a biodiversity. I've heard people refer to something similar, you know, like um, the sense of kinship, you know, even though we've come from different, we're different species, we're different walks of life, we're different races, we're different everything. We, we all have a sense of kinship. I mean, I mean, all of us as an animal species, human species, all of us have a connection and we have a responsibility to look after each other. And that involves taking more responsible steps to saving the planet, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I, I've mentioned a couple of times the word biodiversity and humans are a part of the biodiversity. We can argue whether we are an animal or not, but we are part of the biodiversity and you can't argue that. Yeah, to your point, I mean, our own destruction with the plastic in the ocean is going to end up poisoning us at some stage unless we do something about it. And that's the biodiversity hazard that we're we've creating for ourselves. Have you seen the documentary, The Plastic Ocean? Yeah. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that made me really stressed out. There's, I mean, this is, I call it the rabbit warren of documentaries. Like, you, <laughs> next one comes up and the next one, and they don't really leave you with very much optimism. No. No. Because the reality of it is, is there is like, you cannot return to what it was. We cannot even preserve what it is, but we can make a better future. Yeah. And I think that's what we've got to hold on to is is uh, is using communication tools like your own to try and get that optimism, get that hope, get that change happening. Yeah. Louis, what's what's next for you? What's your what's your next big project? I heard that you were thinking about focusing on plants, but is that your immediate focus? Well, I'm working on a solo show at the moment, um, which opens up in London in May. After that, I'll be doing a couple of little projects. I think I'll mostly stay in Europe this year. Um, and then I'm going to be doing a residency at Urban Nation in Berlin. And then after September, I'm not sure yet. Um, but yeah, I would like to, I would like to at some point start working on the plants, but I also want to deal with, I want to deal with species that are used for farming. And especially because most of those animals don't exist in the wild anymore. They're actually extinct, but we don't talk about that. And yeah, I want to, when I touch on that, I, my, like I said, I grew up in a restaurant and I'm vegan. So uh, it wasn't a vegan restaurant, but I do have a love for cooking. So I like the idea of making a cookbook. Oh, amazing. Species that I'm painting that are being eaten by animal eaters. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always heaps of projects that I want to work on. Yeah, I suppose if you have a creative mind, then the the list of ideas is probably endless, endless. and trying to figure out which ones to do first must be quite a challenge. Yeah, totally. And the other thing is, is that like the more I like at the beginning, I was just like, okay, I'm a painter. But then I became an artist because I was doing sculpture as well and, and murals. And then it was a question of, well, actually, we could make films which doesn't stop me from being an artist, but it means that I'm looking for different avenues to discuss the topic. And I started a podcast because of wanting to be able to discuss the topic more as opposed to just going and painting. And so um, I guess the, the more people I meet on the journey of the topic, the more avenues I realize I can express what it is that I want to express. So it's, it's kind of infinite. I would love to I would love to be able to be an idea generator like that. It's really awesome. 
Um, you're also super inspiring for, for, I imagine, for young artists and for other sort of aspiring artists. Would you have any tips or tricks for, for young artists and creatives out there who are looking to try and communicate critical messages? I think as a young person, just do what you feel is right. Nothing, as a young person, I, I don't really believe that you're making mistakes. I think that you're learning. And so whatever it is that you do, just take steed and say what is it that i just did and just be humble enough to then go that was a mistake this is why it was and learn from it or go yeah that was good that worked and then run with it yeah that's great advice and i think the other key message that i've taken out of this discussion with you louis is your bravery to go ahead and just do what it was you're passionate about you know you mentioned that 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 t- like taking that leap of faith and and going and creating your own brand and your own thing um has been what sort of released you in many ways and i think that's a really important message for many people to understand is like finding that passion and whatever it is that energizes you is is critical i think as for as humans to be sustainable long term I'm sure that many people are going to want to learn more about how they can best support you as an artist. What is the best way to, for people to do that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm on like all of the normal social media things. Uh, I'm debating as to whether to, to delete Facebook after their recent atrocity. I know, scary. But um, but then they own Instagram as well. So is it hypocritical to keep Instagram and delete Facebook? I don't know. But yeah, um, uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I've got my website. That's how to stay in contact with Yeah, I mean, I, I like doing projects with people. I'm not scared of working with corporate businesses, but they've got to be corporate businesses that are prepared to be ethically thinking. And if they're not yet, to change it and to let the art be the point that encourages the change. Um, I, I like working with, you know, family members who want a painting in their home or, do you know what I mean? It's like, at the end of the day, like, Art is for everybody, and I believe that everybody can have a part of it, which is, again, what's great about public art, because it can be for everybody. And, Louis, what is your what is your website? Uh, it's just louismasai.com. And on the socials, easy enough to find you there? Just search for Louis Masai? So, yeah. Okay, great. Great. We'll, um, we'll pop that in the show notes. The podcast, I found a little bit of trouble. Is that only available on your on your website, or are there other places where you can listen to it? No, the, so the, the homepage has got a microsite inside uh, my website. It's like the artist being is a microsite inside the website. And so the art, uh, sorry, the All Fruits Right podcast is in, embedded into my website, but then it sends you off to Mixcloud and it's hosted as the, the podcast themselves are hosted on the Unit 137 uh, Mixcloud, which is Adam's um, sound system where, um uh, like production house uh, mixed cloud we will at some point be getting them onto itunes and so on it's just i wanted to have a few up and live before i posted it up there and i need to work out all of the rss feeds and all of that kind of stuff yeah it is it's it, is, it does take a little bit of figuring out for sure um that sounds great louis we'll put those links into our show notes as well so anybody can find those quickly and easily louis thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us we thoroughly enjoyed this and we learned a lot and uh joy and i just we just wish you huge success in in 2018 and and we're really looking forward to 
your next project and perhaps maybe even in the i think you said you're, you're sticking to to europe this year but maybe uh at some point you can come down to asia pacific and um cover some of the australian or australasian <laughs> critters down there yeah no totally i would actually love to come out to australia i've actually um i've got a good friend out there uh mac um and he he keeps on like asking me to come out um and he paints all about animals as well so awesome well do let us know if you come out and we'll um we'll try connect you as best we can in the in the area with animal people sweet yeah where are you guys based you're in perth is it melbourne we'll be heading back to melbourne yeah yeah, which has got a pretty in- impressive art scene. So I think you would find a one or two walls to paint there. <laughs> yeah, Melbourne isn't that like the main main part in Australia that's like got the art scene. Yeah, yeah hugely. Def- definitely the art hub. I think in in Australia. Yeah, there's incredible uh, murals all over the show. It's it's really beautiful. There's books made about it actually. So I think that you would um I think you would enjoy it, and I think that Melbourne would love to have some of your art. Yeah, that'd be great to get out there at some point, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Louis, once again. And um, yeah, we're really excited to follow your movements. Cool. Thank you so much, guys. Awesome. Cool, Louis. Take care and all the best, hey? All right. Blessed love. Speak soon. Wherever you are out there, we hope you enjoyed this fun episode with Louis Masai. If you want to learn more about Louis or take a look at his outrageously impressive artwork, check out his website or find him on the socials. As always, we'll pop up these links in the show notes at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. We'd also love to know more about who you are and what you'd like to hear more of on this podcast. Let us know over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash contact or shoot us an email on hello at sustainablejungle.com.